Lesson 1 for September 30 to October 6, ready for teaching on Sabbath October 7, the Apostle Paul in Rome. Introduction to this series of lessons. Usually one author writes the series, but this time the editorial staff of the Adult Bible Study Guide have written this series of lessons titled Salvation by Faith Alone, the Book of Romans. And to read us the introduction to this series of lessons is the senior editor of the Adult Bible Study Guide, Clifford Goldstein. He graciously sent this copy of him reading this introduction so that we could include it in this quarter's lessons. Thank you, Dr. Goldstein. Here we stand, Luther on Romans. 500 years ago this month, Martin Luther, a 33-year-old theology professor, posted his 95 theses. And although he was seeking, at first, merely to refute a papal charlatan who was milking Luther's flock by selling indulgences, Luther's act of defiance became the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation, and the world has never been the same since. Of course, much has changed since that day in 1517, but what has not changed is the word of God and the truths in the word that gave Luther the theological foundation to challenge Rome and to deliver to millions the great message of salvation by faith alone. Central to that foundation is our study for this quarter, the Book of Romans. Luther wrote in his commentary on Romans, quote, the epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, and it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Martin Luther, Commentary on Romans. Yes, it was in Romans that Luther found the great truth of justification by faith alone. It was here that this man, struggling with the assurance of salvation, uncovered the great truth, not just of Romans, not just of the New Testament, but of the entire Bible, the truth about the plan of salvation, quote, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began, 2 Timothy 1.9. And this is the truth that salvation is found only in the righteousness of Christ. It is a righteousness credited to us by faith, a righteousness granted to us apart from keeping of the law. Or, as Paul so clearly expressed it in Romans, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Romans 3.28 It was in regard to this truth, too, that Luther, defying the powers and principalities of the world and of the Roman hierarchy, appeared before the Diet of Worms in 1521 and declared, I cannot and will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. J. M. Me Daubigny, History of the Reformation, page 249. And today, faithful Protestants also can do nothing either than stand on the word of God over and against all unbiblical tradition and dogma. No question that Christianity has greatly advanced since Luther, freeing itself from centuries of superstition and false doctrine that not only distorted the gospel, but in fact also usurped it. Yet, over the long years, the Reformation stalled. 
In some places, the progress was replaced by a cold formalism. In others, people actually turned back to Rome. And now, in an age of ecumenism and pluralism, many of the distinctive truths that spurred the Reformation have become blurred, covered up under a fusillade of semantic chicanery that seeks to hide the fundamental differences that have been resolved no more now than they were in Luther's day. The prophecies of Daniel 7, 23 through 25, Daniel 8, 9 through 12, and Revelation 13 and 14, as well as the great news of salvation by faith as found in the book of Romans, show why those faithful to the Bible must firmly adhere to the truths that our Protestants' forefathers defended, even at the cost of their lives. We are Seventh-day Adventists, and we rest upon the principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Hence, we adamantly eject all attempts to draw Christians back to Rome and to the pre-Reformation faith. On the contrary, Scripture points us in the opposite direction, Revelation 18.4, and in that direction we proceed as we proclaim the everlasting gospel, Revelation 14.6, to the world, the same everlasting gospel that inspired Luther 500 years ago. Sabbath afternoon, September 30. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've just read through and studied the books of Peter and the book of Galatians, and now we come to the book of Romans, and in each of these we find the the joyous fact that salvation is by faith alone. And as we Open your word this week, as we open your word this quarter in the book of Romans, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us, that our understanding may be clear, but that also our relationship with our Saviour Jesus may be deepened, and we may be in awe of him for what he has done. Bless us each one, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Let's read that again, Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. It is important for a student of the book of Romans to understand the book's historical background. Context is always crucial when seeking to understand the Word of God. We need to know and understand the issues that were being addressed. Paul was writing to a specific group of Christians at a specific time and for a specific reason. Knowing that reason as much as possible will greatly benefit us in our study. Thus, let's go back in time. Let's transport ourselves back to first-century Rome, become members of the congregation there, and then, as first-century church members, let us listen to Paul and the words that the Holy Spirit gave him to deliver to the believers in Rome. And yet, however localized the immediate issues that Paul was addressing, the principles behind them, in this case the question, how is a person saved, are universal. Yes, Paul was speaking to a specific group of people, 
And yes, he had a specific issue in mind when he wrote the letter. But as we know, many centuries later, in a totally different time and context, the words he wrote were as relevant to Martin Luther as they were to Paul when he first wrote them. And they are relevant to us as well today. Sunday, October 1, the Apostle Paul's Letter. Our text for today is Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. Romans 16 verses 1 and 2 indicates that Paul probably wrote Romans in the Greek city of Centria, which was near Corinth. Paul's mention of Phoebe, a resident of Greater Corinth, establishes that place as the likely background for the letter to the Romans. One of the purposes of establishing the city of origin of the New Testament epistle is to ascertain the date of writing. Because Paul travelled a lot, knowing his location at a particular time gives us a clue to the date. Paul established the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey in AD 49-52. to And that's recounted in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through to 18. On his third journey in AD 53-58, to he visited Greece again, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he returned to Greece again and received an offering for the saints in Jerusalem near the end of his journey. And we read about that in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Therefore, the epistle to the Romans probably was written in the early months of A.D. 58. Question. What other important churches did Paul visit on his third missionary journey? Acts 18.23 says, After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Visiting the Galatian churches, Paul discovered that during his absence, false teachers had convinced the members to submit to circumcision and to keep to other precepts of the law of Moses. Fearing that his opponents might reach Rome before he arrived, Paul wrote a letter, that's the book of Romans, to forestall the same tragedy from happening in Rome. It is believed that the epistle to the Galatians also was written from Corinth during Paul's three months there on his third missionary journey, 
perhaps shortly after his arrival. Ellen White comments in the Acts of the Apostles, page 373, In his epistle to the Romans, Paul set forth the great principles of the gospel. He stated his position on the questions which were agitating the Jewish and the Gentile churches, and showed that the hopes and promises which had once belonged especially to the Jews were now offered to the Gentiles also. End of quote. As we said, it is important in the study of any book of the Bible to know why it was written, that is, what situation it was addressing. Hence, it is important for our understanding of the Epistle of Romans to know which questions were agitating the Jewish and Gentile churches. Next week's lesson will address these questions. But now to finish the day. What kinds of issues are agitating your church at present? Are the threats more from within or from without? What role are you playing in these debates? How often have you stopped to question your role, your position and your attitudes in whatever struggles you're facing? Why is this kind of self-examination so important? Monday, October 2, Paul's Desire to Visit Rome There's no question that the personal touch is the best way to communicate in most cases. We can phone, email, text and even Skype, but face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh is the best way to communicate. That's why Paul announced in his letter to the Romans that he intended to see them in person. He wanted them to know that he was coming and why? Question. Read Romans chapter 15, verses 20 through to 27. What reasons does Paul give for not having visited Rome earlier? What made him decide to come when he did? How central was mission to him in his reasoning? What can we learn about mission and witnessing from Paul's words here? What interesting and important point does Paul make in Romans 15.27 about Jews and Gentiles? Romans 15, beginning at verse 20, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, To whom he was not announced they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason, I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now no longer having a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey, and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints." For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a contribution, a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister them in material things. And that last verse is 
so interesting. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. The great missionary to the Gentiles felt constantly impelled to take the gospel to new areas, leaving others to labour in places where the gospel had been established. In the days when Christianity was young, and the labourers few, it would have been a waste of valuable missionary power for Paul to work in already entered areas. He said in Romans fifteen twenty and 21, So have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, so that they that have not heard shall understand. It was not Paul's purpose to settle down in Rome. It was his aim to evangelise Spain. He hoped to get the support of the Christians in Rome for this venture. Question. What important principle can we take away regarding the whole question of mission from the fact that Paul sought help from an established church in order to evangelise a new area? And so to finish today... Read again Romans fifteen twenty to 27 and notice how much Paul's great desire was to minister and to serve. What motivates you and your actions? How much of a heart of service do you have? Let's read that then, Romans 15, beginning at verse 20. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation, but, as it is written, to whom he, has, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey, and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints." For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For, if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Tuesday, October 3, Paul in Rome. Acts chapter 28, verse 16 reads, Now when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. What does this text tell us about how Paul finally got to Rome? What lesson can we draw from this about the unexpected and unwanted things that so often come our way? Yes, Paul eventually got to Rome, even if it was as a prisoner. How often our plans don't come out as we anticipated and hoped for, even the ones formulated with the best intentions. 
Paul reached Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey with his offering for the poor, which he had collected from the congregations of Europe and Asia Minor. But unexpected events awaited him. He was arrested and chained. After being held prisoner for two years in Caesarea, he appealed to Caesar. Some three years after his arrest, he arrived in Rome, probably not in the manner that he had intended to, when he first wrote years before to the Roman church about his intention to visit the church there. Question. What does Acts 28 verses 17 to 31 tell us about Paul's time in Rome? More important, what lesson can we learn from this passage? Acts 28, beginning at verse 17. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who... When they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because of the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then they said to him, We neither receive letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere." So, when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So, when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word, The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them." Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Ellen White writes in Acts of the Apostles, page 464, Not by Paul's sermons, but by his bonds, was the attention of the court attracted to Christianity. It was as a captive that he broke from so many souls the bonds that held them in the slavery of sin. Nor was this all. He declared, Many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Philippians one fourteen and end of quote. So to finish today, how many times have you experienced unexpected twists in your life that, in the end, 
turned out for the good. Actually, if we look at Philippians 1 verse 12, this might help. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. How can and should you gain faith from those experiences to trust God for the things where no good seems to have arisen? Wednesday, October 4. The Saints in Rome. Question. Here is Paul's salutation to the church in Rome, in Romans 1.7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What principles of truth and theology and of faith can we take away from these words? Beloved of God, while it is true that God loves the world, in a special sense, God loves those who have chosen Him, those who have responded to His love. We see this in the human sphere. We love in a special way those who love us. With them there is a mutual exchange of affection. Love demands response. When the response is not forthcoming, love is limited in its fullest expression. Called to be saints? In some translation, the phrase to be is in italics, which means that the translators have supplied the words. But these two words can be left out and the meaning will still be intact. When they are omitted, we get the expression called saints, that is, designated saints. Saints is the translation of the Greek hegaiou, which literally means holy ones. Holy means dedicated. A saint is one who has been set apart by God. He or she still may have a long way to go in sanctification. But the fact that this person has chosen Christ as the Lord is what designates him or her as a saint in the Bible's meaning of the term. Question. Paul says that they were called to be saints. Does this mean that some people are not called? How do Ephesians 1.4, Hebrews 2.9 and 2 Peter 3.9 help us to understand what Paul means? Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And Hebrews 2 and verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The great news of the gospel is that Christ's death was universal. It was for all human beings. All have been called to be saved in him, called to be saints even before the foundation of the world. 
God's original intention was for all humanity to find salvation in Jesus. The final fire of hell was meant only for the devil and his angels, as we read in Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That some folk don't avail themselves of that which was offered doesn't take away from the wonder of the gift any more than someone who goes on a hunger strike in a marketplace takes away from the wondrous bounties found there. And so to finish the day, even before the foundation of the world, God called you to have salvation in Him. Why should you not allow anything, anything at all, to hold you back from heeding that call? Thursday, October 5, The Believers in Rome Romans chapter 1 and verse 8 reads, Firstly, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. It is not known how the congregation in Rome was established. The tradition that the church was founded by Peter or Paul is without historical foundation. Perhaps laypersons established it, Converts on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, who then visited or moved to Rome, or perhaps at some later period, converts moved to Rome, witnessed to their faith in that world capital. It is surprising that in just a few decades from Pentecost, a congregation that apparently had received no apostolic visit should be so widely known, as we read in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1067, Ellen White writes, Notwithstanding the opposition, twenty years after the crucifixion of Christ, there was a live, earnest church in Rome. This church was strong and zealous, and the Lord worked for it. End of quote. Faith here probably includes the broader sense of faithfulness, that is, faithfulness to the new way of life they had discovered in Christ. Question. Read Romans chapter 15 verse 14. How does Paul describe the church at Rome? Romans 15 verse 14. Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Here are the three items that Paul selects as worthy of note in the Roman Christian's experience. 1. Full of goodness. Would people say this of us in their own experiences? As they associate with us, is it the abundance of goodness in us that attracts their attention? 2. Filled with all knowledge. The Bible repeatedly emphasizes the importance of enlightenment, information and knowledge. Christians are urged to study the Bible and to become well informed as to its teachings. The words, as Ellen White writes in My Life Today, page 24, A new heart also will I give you, mean a new mind will I give you. 
A change of heart is always attended by a clear conviction of Christian duty, an understanding of truth. End of quote. And three, able to admonish one another. No one can thrive spiritually if isolated from fellow believers. We need to be able to encourage others and, at the same time, be encouraged by others. And so to finish the day, what about your local church? What kind of reputation does it have? Or, even more important, does it even have one at all? What does your answer tell you about your local church? More important, if need be, how can you help improve the situation? Friday, October 6. We start the day with the quotation from the Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Theology, published by the Review and Herald Publishing Association in 2000, and these quotes are from pages 275 and 276. The salvation of mankind does not result from a divine afterthought or improvisation made necessary because of an unexpected turn of events after sin arose. Rather, it issues from a divine plan for man's redemption formulated before the founding of this world, as we read in 1 Corinthians 2.7, Ephesians 1.3, Ephesians 1.14, 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 and 14, and rooted in God's everlasting love for humanity, as expressed in Jeremiah 31 verse 3. This plan encompasses eternity past, the historical present, and eternity future. It includes such realities and blessings as election and predestination to be God's holy people and bear likeness to Christ, redemption and forgiveness, the unity of all things in Christ, sealing with the Holy Spirit, reception of the eternal inheritance and glorification as expressed in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through to 14. Central to the plan is the suffering and death of Jesus, which was not an accident of history nor the product of merely human decision, but was rooted in God's redemptive purpose as expressed in Acts chapter 4 verses 27 and 28. Jesus was in truth the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that's found in Revelation 13, verse 8, end of quote. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, in class, talk about the meaning of the Protestant Reformation. Think about this question especially. How different would our world be today without it? Two, dwell more on the idea that we were called to have salvation even before the foundation of the world. As we read in Titus 1 verses 1 and 2, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. And Second Timothy Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, 
but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Why should we find this so encouraging? What does this tell us about God's love for all humans? Why then is it so tragic when people turn their backs on what has been so graciously offered to them? And three, dwell on the question at the end of Thursday's study. How could your class help to improve your church's reputation, if need be? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Saved by the Sabbath? Andre grew up in the western Ukrainian city of Lutsk. While at school, he became acquainted with Pavel, a student who attended a Seventh-day Adventist church on Saturdays. Being a non-believer, Andre didn't think much about when or where people went to church, nor did he care. After finishing their high school education, both André and Pavel planned to study at the Lviv National Academy of Arts, so they went to Lviv to take the academy's entrance exam. After finishing the exam, the two decided to walk around the campus. Suddenly, a large notice on the announcement board caught their eye. There was going to be an air show commemorating the 60th anniversary of the Ukrainian Air Force's 14th Air Corps. The event would be held at the Skinliv airfield, just six kilometres, or 3.7 miles, from central Lviv. Excitedly, André and Pavel scanned the notice for further details. Then Pavel noticed the date of the air show, July 27, 2002. Realising that day was a Saturday, he decided that he would not be going to the air show after all. André I'm going to church on July 27. Would you like to come with me? Pavel asked. Now it was Andre's turn to carefully consider the situation. He really wanted to go to the air show, but there was something so sincere about Pavel's invitation that Andre decided to accept. He wondered what could be so special about this church that would make Pavel choose to go there rather than to the air show. Reflecting on that first visit to a Seventh-day Adventist church, Andre later recalled, We spent the whole day there, and I really liked the church. What Pavel and Andre didn't know was that, while they were at church, the worst air show disaster in history was taking place at the Skinliv airfield, with over 10,000 spectators watching. At 12.52pm, a Su-27 aircraft flown by two experienced pilots, crashed and exploded into the crowd of spectators. Seventy-seven spectators were killed, including 28 children. Another 543 spectators were injured. One hundred of those injured were hospitalised and suffered head injuries, burns and bone fractures. When André heard the news the next day, he was stunned. That event made me realise that I could have died there 
or could have been severely injured. I became friends with the many young people at the Adventist Church, and after attending regularly for one year, I decided to be baptised. Later, Andre decided to change his career plans and studied at the Ukrainian Adventist Centre of Higher Education in Bukha to become a pastor. In 2004, part of the 13th Sabbath offering helped to build a dormitory at Bukha. In 2014, the 13th Sabbath offering helped to build or expand schools in Lviv, Cherkasy and Vinitsia, Ukraine and especially an ed- educational complex in Dnipropetrovsk. Thank you for supporting this important offering. I hope I got some of those towns right, but methinks not. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.